0: is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to the second episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. Thanks for coming back. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. Make sure that you like the Facebook page, that you subscribe or follow somewhere, and that you share it with others. Episode two is entitled, Why Christians Should Care About Climate Change. Now this program is a recommendation or a suggested topic, Uh, so a big shout out to my friend Kerry for suggesting it. It's not an exhaustive list, but here is my current top seven, not meaning to sound like David Letterman, my top seven reasons why Christians should care about climate change. So let's get on with it. Firstly, God is worshipped as creator, so to not harm that creation is itself an act of worship. New Testament theologian and historian Tom Wright talks about the Hebrew mindset as being uh, exemplifying creational monotheism, and that's just a fancy way of saying that the Hebrews believed that their one God was the creator of all that is, and as the creed captures seen and unseen. And this, of course, is a view that persists through Christianity and into what we call the New Testament. So let's look at some passages that look at that and draw this point out a little bit. Firstly, if you read Genesis chapter 1, you see that God makes everything good. Each day is marked by that declaration and God saw that it was good. And then on this, the end of the, God's creative acts, it says that it is indeed very good. Now, in a future program, we'll tease this out more. But this divine victory that we read or divine controlling or limiting of the initial chaos of the deep hints at an enthronement if you compare it to other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. So the writer of Genesis 1 is taking previous material and making uh, a point that the creator of all it is is the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The seven day creation account and the blessing of the seventh day points to the importance, too, of Sabbath rest. So God rests on the Sabbath day, and then that's the pattern that Israel follows for the Sabbath. Again, something I'll talk about in a later program. Sabbath rest was actually part of Israel's worship, both that in the temple and that of the, uh, the layperson, and represents rest for humans, domestic animals, and agricultural land. And in the command for Jubilee, you find at the end of Leviticus, this also includes wild animals. So there's something, uh, this whole idea then is that God is, is worshipped as a creator of all that is, and that to look after that creation, to rest from work and give creation rest, is is an act of worship. It's very obvious in Genesis chapter 2 that divine creation is followed by the command to till and to keep. And these two words in the Hebrew actually have religious performative overtones. And I'll talk more about that again in a a later program, and that the Garden of Eden is this sacred space where God dwells, God walks with uh, the man and the woman. Indeed, these images are picked up again in the later parts of the book of Leviticus. Psalm 104 is another great example of this. It's a hymn to divine creativity and wisdom. Verse 1 reads, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honour and majesty. So language of royalty, language of divinity. Verse 24. "O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all, the earth is full of your creatures. So it's a real hymn to biodiversity and the sheer abundance of living creatures other than human beings. And then towards the end of the psalm we read in verse 31, "May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works." And so there's a parallelism here, that the glory of the Lord is manifest in the works of the Lord. So again, God is, as creator is worshipped, and in turn to care for that creation is, to, is an act of worship. Or take, for example, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. It's a psalm that was sung when entering the temple, a pilgrim entering the temple. And it reads, The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it." The world and those who live in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? So, again, this strong connection between a God that you worship and go to his temple and do what we would call religion and this other thing that is creation. So, again, you can see. Our artificial categories of science and religion and the natural world and the church and whatever else, they're all dissolved in the Hebrew Bible. Finally, Revelation chapter 4. We have a vision of the throne room of God, and it's an assurance to those persecuted by the Roman Empire in the first century that God was in charge of history. The vision contains the rainbow, which takes us back to the flood and the covenant that God makes with the whole of creation. Note of course this is not a defence against climate change, again a point I'll take up in another program. But should we read the hymn of praise of the twenty four elders who surround the throne, they sing You are worthy, O Lord and God our uh, sorry, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Praising God as creator. How can you praise God as creator and yet damage that creation through climate change or pollution or in you know other ways of desecrating that 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 beautiful creation? My second reason why Christians should care about climate change is that creation is provision for our needs, so caring for it is an act of wisdom. Both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have a distinctly agricultural flavor to them. While it's not exhaustive of the meaning of the text, nonetheless, it's an obvious background. It's very obvious in Genesis 2, but I wanna read to you from a book by Ellen F. Davis, who's a professor in practical theology, um, in fact, Bible and practical theology at Duke University. And the book is entitled, Scripture, Culture and Agriculture, An Agrarian Reading of the Bible. And she writes about um, Genesis chapter 1. Let me read a few, uh, a few paragraphs to you. The base rhythm in this poem, that is Genesis 1, that opens the Bible is established through the first two days of creation, and it is spare. With as few words as possible and no details, the poet traces the pattern of divine summons, of making, of light, of firmament, followed immediately by a notice of fulfillment, which is the, the formula, and it was so. There is however a pronounced shift in rhythm on the third day just when the dry land has been seen and pronounced good the narrative pace slows as the earth is first furnished for living with a carpet of vegetation with fruit trees and lights and then established by in sorry inhabited by every animal being each stage of the process is more detailed than the last The divine work on the dry land culminates in the creation, blessing, and uniquely, the commissioning and instruction of the human creature. Moreover, the poetic device of bracketing accentuates the significance of this portion of the narrative. The whole description of the dry land is marked off by lengthy notices about plants at the beginning concerning their variety and self-perpetuating fruitfulness, and at the end concerning their distribution on the food chain. Plants with cultivable Cultivatable seeds for humans, or the other greenery for the animals. Those bracketing passages should attract attention by both their length and the sudden awkwardness of their language. The strict verbal economy that characterises the rest of the chapter breaks down completely in lines such as these. Let the earth sprout out sprouts. Plants seeding seed. Fruit trees making fruit, each of its own kind, with them, or with their seed in them, on the earth and it was so and the earth brought forth sprouts plants seeding seed each of its own kind and trees making fruit with its seeds in it each of its own kind the first phrase of the opening bracket is an ostentatious neologism sprouting out sprouts its effect is magnified by the proliferation of seed that follows immediately here and appears again in the closing bracket Here I give you every plant-seeding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree that has on it tree-fruit-seeding seed. For you it shall be for eating. And so the point that Davis is making is that this whole passage is about provision, or a good chunk of the passage is about provision of our needs to eat. And so caring for that very creation, so we continue to eat, or continue to be able to eat, is surely a piece of wisdom. Think also of the emphasis of the promised land on this idea of it being uh, flowing with milk and honey. Exodus 3.17 I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. Or Numbers 14.18 If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. A ripe picture of a land full of bounty. Surely one that you should look after so it stays that way. Think also Psalm 104, which I touched on earlier. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. Heat at the wrong time can reduce the yields of cereal crops by more than 50%, more than half, causing people to starve, that is, no bread. A six-year-long drought, where the climate crisis played a key role, was implicated in food shortages and the political crisis and unrest in Syria. If we continue to change the climate unabated or deplete topsoils with poor agricultural methods, we will starve ourselves, denying this or you know, working against this divinely instituted provision for our physical needs, it's crazy. Point number three why should Christians care about climate change? Creation is God's provision for all creatures. We need to move beyond a purely human centered view of the world that thinks God only cares for us humans. Genesis 1. And to every beast, or living creature, of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to every thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. The resources, if you want to use that term, of the earth are as much for non-human life as they are for human life. Read again Psalm 104. Remember, this is part of the hymn book of Israel. Maybe doesn't look like a lot of our hymn books. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. The wild asses quench their thirst. By the streams the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Elsewhere, this, this word satisfied refers to human hunger. And here we have this evocative picture of the earth personified, being satisfied for the way in which God cares for it. It's part of the same passage that goes on to talk about human agricultural needs, of which is just a tiny part of the narrative. In other words, while human beings are said to be made in the image of God and have an important role in the creation, that does not mean that that the rest of the creation, the non-human part, is any less significant. And Christians in particular should be able to see that value. It goes beyond the purely economic. It goes beyond the purely utilitarian. We need to transcend the values that we inherit from modern capitalism and infuse instead our approach to the world around us with a deeper sense of wonder and awe and appreciation for it being uh, the act the creation of God. And it's not just romantic uh, in the sense of being you know, idyllic or peaceful or whatnot. Later on in Psalm 104, we read, You make darkness and it is night when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Yes, even predation, which some Christians find difficult to face, difficult to deal with and may in the end times disappear we do not know is embraced by scripture. So the fear that human beings have of top predators is not only ignorant of their important role in ecological systems but it's also theologically moribund. If God feeds all creatures but we kill them beyond our needs starve them by upsetting their homes via deforestation, fire that results from climate change, or deny them water due to climate change or our agricultural needs, don't we harm God's fellow creatures, oh sorry, our fellow creatures made by God. So to care about climate change as a Christian means recognizing that creation is God's provision, not just simply for human beings, but for all of God's creatures. And the rest of my points I'll cover in the second half of the program. Welcome back. Moving on to reason four why Christians should should care about climate change. Creation has a future it shares with us, which motivates us to care for it now. Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now. In this passage, Paul talks about how the creation longs for the future revealing of the sons of God, in verse 19, while we groan for our sonship, which is in verse 23 I didn't read. The language of sonship represents the idea of inheritance common in the ancient Near East, where the firstborn son inherits the father's wealth. Our inheritance is not limited to men, of course, but to all children of God, verse 21. And the Greek is different. It is definitely children there. So sons is picking up on this inheritance idea. This inheritance is of the new heavens and earth, just as Jesus said that the meek, those Christ-like in character, would inherit the earth. And that's in Matthew 5.5. 5. We come into this inheritance when we are raised from the dead, also described by Paul as the redemption of our bodies in Verse 23. The creation waits eagerly for us to be raised from the dead because something about renewed humanity will be beneficial for it. In our renewal, creation will find its own liberation. Verse 21. Creation was subjected by God to futility in hope of its eventual liberation, just as humanity was given over the sin, see that in Romans 1, ultimately in hope of the resurrection. And this isn't metaphor. Take, for example... Uh, Paul's contemporary, the philosopher and Roman senator Seneca, who wrote of Rome in the first century, No sooner had I left behind the oppressive atmosphere of the city and the reek of smoking cookers, which pour out along with clouds of ashes or the poisonous fumes that have accumulated, I noticed the change in my condition at once. In other words, he had a rough time trying to breathe in the city of Rome. Now, of course, you'd also be familiar with the concept of Roman aqueducts. But Rome is right near the Tiber River. That's where you settled cities alongside rivers. Why wouldn't you drink from the river then? Unless, of course, it too was polluted. And we know the Romans drove several wild animals extinct, massacring them in the circus. So Paul himself could see that empire was destructive of its environment. So when he talks about creation groaning and birth pains, it's not mere metaphor. It's the reality of environmental destruction. Now, Adam's task, as we've seen in Genesis 2, was to tend and care for creation. And his rebellion and the idolatry of our forebears has meant that creation has not been under the rule for which it was intended. And you can argue about the vocabulary of rule and so on and more nuanced understanding of human beings alongside other creatures. But in the biblical language, we see this failure to care properly for creation. Now, Israel failed to carry out its divinely appointed task but instead fell constantly into idolatry and dishonours God's name. You can read about that in Romans 2. The Gentile nations also worship the creation rather than the Creator. This is Paul's central argument. And then God sent his own son into the world to fulfil the requirements of the Old Covenant, or the law of the Hebrew Bible, and be the instrument of the blessings promised to Abraham and his descendants. And you read about that in Genesis 12, 1-3. Being in Christ through the Spirit, we are now to take up this role to bring blessing to the world. The church does not exist for itself, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and being peacemakers, as Jesus is noted as saying in Matthew 5.9. And that peace extends to all creatures. And this is what happens at the resurrection. And you read about that in Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1, passages I'll talk about at another time. Reason five why Christians should care about climate change. Damaging creation is not part of the divine plan, but an accommodation to human sin or evil. Now, some people will argue, some Christians will argue, that the present suffering is part of the quote-unquote end times foreordained by God, and that caring for creation is somehow futile, if not heresy, and an attempt to delay the return of Christ. We are apparently living in the the tribulation and the church is awaiting the rapture, being beamed up to heaven while the creation literally goes to hell and those not in our tribe suffer. But Romans 8 shows us that creation has a future tied up with ours. So any idea that we're beamed up to heaven while the rest of humanity suffers and the earth is destroyed is a gross misreading of biblical eschatology or end times thinking. Certainly Romans 8, it ignores... And it misreads the book of Revelation. And I did write a whole book about that, and I will touch upon that in future programs. We've also seen that the original plan was to care for the garden, which is ultimately all the creation in Genesis 2.15. Now, it is true that when you read Romans 8 carefully, it does say that God subjects creation to frustration. But of course, that's under us and our inability to live alongside non-humans. Indeed, along each, alongside each other, in the hope of saving it. So in one sense, you could argue that human beings, certainly Christians, do not save the earth. But if Paul is saying that our resurrected selves will live peacefully with the earth, why don't we start now? As Paul says elsewhere, Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Shall we go on uh, abusing the creation so that grace might abound? Certainly not now in critiquing the roman empire and its emphasis on growing wealth at the expense of the poor john of the apocalypse writes in revelation 11 quote the nations raged but your wrath has come and the time for judging the dead for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints and all who fear your name both small and great and for destroying those who destroy the earth End quote from Revelation 11. The church too often sides with power and wealth and turn and in turn a blatant disregard for the poor and the earth. It's time to stop that. Reason six. Now you'll notice up until now, I've just talked about creation and being good stewards relating well to non-humans. I haven't really mentioned climate change explicitly except kind of peripherally in a few points, but... 6. Climate change is real. Christians should be truth-tellers wherever that truth is found. In Genesis 2, God invites Adam to name the animals, which implies that humans were created to classify and understand the world around us. The Bible also insists that the reason things so often go wrong in human society is that human beings are sinful. Sin, rather than sins in the plural which are individually moral acts, can be reflected as missing the mark of falling short of what it means to be human, which is to reflect God. That's Romans 3.23. While sin may affect us morally so that we can't think correctly about spiritual things without God's spirit, and that's the whole point of Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1, it doesn't mean a person needs the spirit to think about the world around us, to practice science. For example... Two examples from the Bible make this very clear indeed. I'm sorry if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, but this is a point that needs to be made clearly for some Christians. The Bible is understood by Christians to have been inspired by God. Right? It's God-breathed, as well as being a human book. The authors of the Old Testament were Jews, God's people. And yet, King Lemuel wrote some of Proverbs and may have been a non-Jewish king. Other Proverbs echo egyptian wisdom literature so it's quite possibly borrowed from them so it isn't like jews or christians have a monopoly on common sense that said there is no shortage of christians involved in climate science either and i'm sure you can think of some examples um, catherine Hayho being one and um, the late john horton a climate scientist and a former head of the intergovernmental panel on climate change so we can work alongside those we don't share the same worldview with, and they and we can have perceptions of the truth about the way things work in the world. Let me turn now not to scripture, but somebody who large sections of the church hold in high esteem, St. Augustine. Again, forgive me for the archaic language, depending on your traditional beliefs. Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth the heavens and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbit of the stars and even their size and relative positions, about the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon, the cycles of the years and the seasons, about kinds of animals, shrubs, stones and so forth, and this knowledge he, hold, he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel sorry, to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense on these topics and we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh at to scorn. The shame is not so much that an ignorant individual is derided, but that the people outside the household of faith think our sacred writers held such opinions, and, to the great loss of those for whose salvation we toil, the writers of our scripture are criticised and rejected as unlearned men. And that's from his commentary on the literal meaning of Genesis. So don't talk nonsense that you think is right out of the Bible. Look at the science itself and enter into a dialogue between Scripture and what we can observe with our senses. And it's important that you do that because think about the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Being ignorant of science for theological or political reasons and twisting the truth makes you into a liar. And you're bearing false testimony or false witness against your Christian or non-Christian neighbor who works in the sciences, particularly uh, we're thinking about in this program, the climate sciences. Last reason, reason seven, why Christians should care about climate change. Climate change is a justice issue. Micah 6, eight, a favorite passage of many of us involved in justice issues, says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God calls us to do justice. Justice is not something to talk about or to be in love with, the idea of, as Eugene Cho often says. Justice is something that is done. The word in Hebrew translated as justice is mishpat. As um, Tim Keller discusses, Mishpat has a range of meanings but is often used to mean giving people their rights. Very often these rights are applied to the most vulnerable and needy in society. Widows, the fatherless, the stranger, alien and the poor. You read about that in Zechariah 7 and Deuteronomy 10. It is often said that God shows preferential care for the poor and this is not because the rich are less lovable. God so loved the world that he sent his son not just uh, to the poor... However, as Nicholas Walsterstorff notes, the poor are both more vulnerable to injustice and much more likely to suffer injustice. So mishpat is what we might call restorative justice. If someone is in trouble, we are called to restore them to their original state of human dignity. A few examples. Pacific islanders are losing their homes beneath the waves due to sea level rise, and that sea level rise is of course tied to warming atmospheric temperatures. But these Pacific Islanders hardly burn any fossil fuels compared to rich Western nations. As I noted earlier, there was a six-year-long drought in Syria, and it's directly linked to warming in the Indian Ocean, which is, of course, in turn directly linked to climate change, and that contributed to food shortages, civil rest, and hence refugees. Melting Himalayan glaciers and irregular monsoonal rains leading to catastrophic flooding events this leads to displacement and the enslavement of the rural poor in india who people are actively pursuing to place into bonded work while drought in india can hit sugar farmers hard leading to suicide and poverty hotter summers due to the burning of fossil fuels are impacting farmers in pakistan and making uh, life difficult and hazardous to be outside for remote Aboriginal communities. So closing the gap becomes all that more difficult. And of course, there are generations of school kids marching about climate change, facing a future where our way of life that we enjoy now is impossible. And what do our shock jocks do but tell them you should be in school? when they're fighting for their very future. What are the two greatest commandments? But to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which covers so much of what I've said in this program on worshipping the Creator by caring for His creation. And love your neighbour in space, those suffering now and in time, our children who are growing up into the world that is warming and changing rapidly as ourselves. So should Christians care about climate change? Absolutely. Thank you for listening, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison, with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.